You're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Amy Offner about her stunning new book called Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, The Rise and Fall of Welfare in Developmental States in the Americas. It was published this year by Princeton University Press. This is the kind of book that's difficult to sum up in an introduction, as it accomplishes a lot in its 400 pages. Offner explores the history of the mixed economy, showing that the elements of what was later referred to as neoliberalism had their roots in the welfare state and the developmental state. Decentralization, privatization, and austerity were common state strategies for the mixed economy. Moreover, by tracking the connections and exchanges between the U.S. and Colombia, Offner suggests, she writes, that one way of tracing the route from the New Deal to the Great Society is by traveling through Latin America. As it brings together the history of businessmen, state-making, managerial expertise, and foreign policy, Offner's book is bound to shake up many fields. It should be read widely. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Amy Offner about her fantastic new book called Sorting Out the Mixed Economy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amy. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun reading your book. I'm currently on parental leave, um, and so it was a wonderful interruption from uh, diaper changing and other fatherly duties. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and I'm glad that we're having this conversation. So to begin our conversation, how did you end up becoming a historian, especially one of U.S.-Latin American relations? From your acknowledgments, it does sound like there is a bit of a story there. Oh, um, that's interesting. I would say how I became a historian... Um, it's maybe a roundabout path. I didn't really intend to become a professional historian, although I was really interested in history from an early age. And I think that just came from the fact that um, I was interested in understanding my parents and my grandparents. And they narrated their lives often in terms of the social movements and the politics of their lifetimes. And they were involved in a lot of political work when I was growing up. So my parents were public school teachers, and they were union activists. Um, My family was also involved in the sanctuary movement in the 1980s when I was a kid. So just understanding a lot of what was happening around me often involved learning about history. Um, And I had some great history teachers as well. I went to a really great public school. So by the time I got to college, I didn't um, necessarily intend to major in history, but I was interested in history because it seemed like a very natural way of thinking about politics, I suppose. Um, and in college, I started out as a math major, hmm. and I was taking a lot of music classes. Um, but what made me switch to history was actually a class that I took with Patricia Sullivan, who's a great historian of African-American history and the Black Freedom Movement. She got me involved in historical research, and I got really engrossed in that. So she made a big difference in my life, I would say. Um, when I was in college, I also was um, getting involved in the labor movement. I started college in 1997, and this was the Seattle moment. There were living wage campaigns springing up in cities across the country and on college campuses, and this was a time when United Students Against Sweatshops was was being organized. Um, the global justice movement was really an exciting thing to be a part of, and so outside the classroom, that was also a lot of my a lot of my education was was really coming through those left political currents. And when I graduated from college, you know, I wanted to remain part of the political community that I had become involved in. So I worked in and around the labor movement for a while after college. I worked as a union organizer, and then I worked as um, 
a uh, an editor at Dollars and Cents, which is a left wing political economy magazine and book publisher. And um, when I applied to go to graduate school, honestly, I was burnt out in my job and I wanted it some time to read. And <laughs> grad school is good for that. It's time to read. <laughs> and, um, you know, I went to Columbia. I was lucky to be admitted there. And I worked with Eric Foner. And um, one of the kind of unanticipated things, I guess, that happened in graduate school is that I had applied to work in U.S. labor history and African-American history because those were the areas in which I, I had some background and those were meaningful topics to me. But I had other interests that I thought of as just kind of my political interests, areas in which I didn't really have any scholarly background. So on the one hand, there was an um, interest in Latin America that I think had really probably begun when my family was involved in the sanctuary movement. That for me was, as a child, my introduction to U.S. foreign policy and to um Latin America. Um, and, you know, I, I think through my political activities in my life, I remained interested in Latin America. Um, and I also had an interest that had come out of my own kind of labor activism in neoliberalism, which was definitely not a concept that I studied in school. You know, when I was in college, that there was not the kind of scholarly discussion about that concept that there is today. It was instead a word that I encountered entirely within the left. And for me as a kind of as an activist in the late 90s, and the early 2000s, it was a really meaningful concept that helped me understand the politics of my lifetime. And it gave me also an implied account of the 20th century and kind of the, the origins of, of the politics of my lifetime. And so I went to, when I went to grad school, that was also on my mind, sort of the, the making and the meaning of neoliberalism. And in ways that I definitely didn't expect when I went to grad school, um, grad school gave me the chance to kind of knit all of those interests together. And so the book, I think, still conveys my kind of abiding interest in social history and the idea that social conflict is an engine of social change or of historical change. That kind of interest is what labor history and African-American history kind of meant to me, I suppose. But I took that perspective and then I applied it to other questions. And so the book is centrally about understanding the Latin American influence, I suppose, on the formation of the U.S. welfare state. And in that sense, it applies a central insight of post-colonial studies, the idea that imperialism shapes metropoles to the history of the United States. And it's also a book that offers um, a new understanding of the origins of neoliberalism. And it does that by... Um, kind of reformulating the question. And instead of asking where neoliberalism came from, the book asks about the order that came before neoliberalism. It asks about the welfare and developmental states that grew up between the Great Depression and the 1960s. And um, it makes the case that a lot of what we think of today as characteristic features of neoliberalism actually had earlier lives as developmentalist phenomena and that neoliberalism should be understood as a parasitic formation that appropriated and redeployed central aspects of the very order that, that it buried. Great. I was wondering if you could just elaborate a bit more on how you ended up doing Latin American history and U.S. Latin American history. Um, in your acknowledgments, um, you, uh, you give a, a nice um, acknowledgement to Eric Foner, yeah. who apparently let you drop out of school um, to yeah. spend a year in Columbia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I Yeah, I mean, I, I entered uh, grad school in U.S. history, and I still consider myself uh, very much involved in that field. And uh, I don't think that I stopped being a U.S. historian. But 
in the course of graduate school, actually, I received a lot of encouragement to sort of widen out and, and explore interests that, um, that I had. And so I TA'd for Anders Stephenson and his U.S. foreign policy class. And John Coatsworth arrived at Columbia not long after I did. And I started uh, working with him. You know, he's a, a wonderful Latin Americanist. And so through my coursework and through my orals reading, I did want, I did, you know, I decided that I did want to incorporate Latin America into my research. Um, and I had a little bit of experience, you know, in seminars and so on. But I, when the dissertation topic started to um, form in my mind, it became clear to me that actually Colombia was a country that made sense for me to focus on. And that was quite a surprise to me. And I really needed to remediate myself in order to do that. And um, because of the way that graduate school works, there's only so many years that you can really be enrolled as a graduate student. And I needed to do a level of remediation to, to ground myself in Latin American history and to improve my Spanish. And I needed to do that, I would say, beyond what like the graduate school clock would allow. So I uh, took a leave of absence and I went and lived in Colombia for a little while and got a job there and uh, did my best to get up to speed and, you know, came back and did my dissertation. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so your book does a lot and we're going to get into the individual chapters, um, but I really want to help listeners understand sort of the, the broad sketch of the book before we um, dive into those individual chapters. And you've already uh, um, touched on some of them. But just to get started, can you enlighten me and our listeners on the language in your title? What do you mean by sorting out the mixed economy? Mm, yeah. So uh, one of the things I had to do in writing this book was think about what kinds of concepts I wanted to use. And it's really difficult to come up with concepts that work across national contexts, actually. So for instance, some of the key terms that U.S. historians use um, to understand the 20th century don't work very well outside the United States. So for instance, the kind of rise and fall of mid-century liberalism is not a, a very easy narrative to sort of tell in a transnational way because liberalism means so many different things in other places. Um, and um, one of the things that I did find was kind of a concept that was used across different capitalist economies in this in the mid-20th century was the idea of the mixed economy. And I thought that was a really evocative term of its time and also a fairly powerful concept for historians to think with. The mixed economy at the, you know, at the time was understood to be this um, kind of imagined path between two stylized ideals. On the one hand, socialism, and the other hand, laissez-faire. Or, you know, another way to put that is people thought of it as a, as a path between complete state ownership and pure private competition. This is a way of describing capitalism, but it was, um, at the time, uh, uh, kind of a, an authorizing concept, I suppose, that allowed people to create a wide variety of lived ideals and practices that fused public and private, that fused uh, for-profit and non-profit in all sorts of different ways, actually. There's a huge expanse that exists between these two stylized poles. And I think that's the kind of world that people were working in in the mid-20th century when they were trying to construct welfare and developmental states in, in capitalist uh, societies. They thought of themselves as creating these kinds of mixed economies. And I'm really interested in the contradictions, actually, and kind of the multiple futures that are seated in a world where uh, you can actually get so many different um, articulations of public and private interest of state and capital. 
And I think that a lot of practices that we think of as neoliberal today um, were perfectly permissible, actually, under the auspices of a mixed economy. Um, but they weren't understood to be um, created in service of neoliberalism. They were actually understood to be created in service of development and of social welfare. And when I think then about what kind of a rupture happens in the late 20th century when you have really the dismantling of these mid-century welfare and developmental states and the construction of a neoliberal um, capitalist order, I think of that as a process where certain features of mid-century statecraft, forms, for instance, of austere social welfare provision, forms of for-profit contracting, forms of state decentralization that were used actually to build those mid-century states that were really constitutive features of mixed economies. Those get sort of sorted from their counterparts, their historical counterparts. They get plucked from their original context and they get uh, can then resituated in a fairly new kind of political economy and that uh, makes them neoliberal instruments, which they hadn't been before. And so I talk about the kind of 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s as a time when um, the birth of neoliberalism involves kind of sorting uh, different elements of mixed economies from each other. You pluck out certain of them, and they live on, and they become seen as purely neoliberal instruments, and their earlier lives are forgotten. That's what I think is actually going on in the late 20th century. And in that sense, I'm trying to sort of um, suggest that this is not a moment uh, where it's just the world turned upside down, that the rise of neoliberalism doesn't simply involve people reaching for new ideas and substituting one set of ideas and practices for another, but instead it's a much more parasitic phenomenon in which some of the um, most ambiguous or most regressive elements of mixed economies get appropriated and repurposed. Someone that matters a lot to your book is David Lilenthal. Uh, he comes up um, a lot in other people's books. Um, you know, he's best known for perhaps leading the Tennessee Valley Authority um, and then later the Atomic Energy Commission. But he looks completely different in your book. Um, and I think he serves as an exemplary figure, um, you know, in the sense that he shows how the route from the New Deal to the Great Society um, was really well traveled through Latin America. Uh, can you just give our listeners um uh, an introduction to who David Lilenthal was and how his post-World War II international development career matters. Sure. David Lilienthal is somebody who left a huge amount of paper, and that is why he is in everyone's book. Mm -hmm. Lilienthal doesn't cause anything to happen, but he's kind of like this zelig figure who's everywhere at all times, <laughs> and he's so prolific. He's just this amazing kind of guide to the 20th century world or to certain aspects of it. And his papers are also very interesting in that, you know, he's, he's an incredible self-promoter, so you also have to read his work, obviously, with a skeptical eye. Um, Lilienthal had this long career as a public servant. Um, he's a you know famous face of the New Deal. And after the Second World War, um, he, uh, well, he becomes the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. And in 1950, he decides that he's spent enough time in public service and he's not making any money there. And he decides he wants to become a businessman. And Lilienthal transforms himself into a for-profit development consultant where his whole you know, later post-war career is spent basically peddling lessons from the TVA and selling his services to um, foreign governments. His first job is in Colombia. He has a long career in Iran. He's a close associate of the Shah of Iran. And one of the things that I find really interesting about Lilienthal is um, 
that he, throughout his career, from the time that he's TVA chairman through his career as a um, as an international consultant, and then in the uh, you know Johnson years, he kind of weaves his way back home to insinuate himself into the great society. Um, in all of those kind of different manifestations, he understands himself to be a champion of state decentralization. Now, we think of state decentralization often as this kind of innovation of the late twentieth century that is. Um, taking apart um, the New Deal order, that is taking apart um, developmental states and reassigning their functions to subnational governments or to um, supranational um, uh, institutions. But Lilienthal thought actually that the lesson of the New Deal was that you needed to have this kind of like alphabet soup of agencies because they reconciled planning with democracy. You know, in the 30s and 40s, people are really worried about planning as a as an instrument of fascism or as a communist instrument. And for Lilienthal, there's a way that you can reconcile, you know, capitalism, planning, and democracy, and it's by decentralizing um, state functions. So the state can grow, but it doesn't. Um, uh, over-centralize. He thinks that's the lesson of, of the Tennessee Valley Authority, this iconic New Deal agency. And I find um, in Lilienthal's trajectory through the 20th century, um, this constant reinterpretation of that commitment to decentralization. And I argue that decentralization is not actually a new prescription of the late 20th century, but instead it's something that was kind of a very characteristic form of government in the Americas that gets reimagined and redeployed time and again. So in Lilienthal's case, he becomes entangled with a group of Colombian capitalists who um, uh, champion the idea of decentralization because they see it as a way that they can create um, uh, new public enterprises that they will run and wrest power away from the capital city, take it for themselves. And that becomes a way of building a developmental state by handing uh, state power to capitalists. And Lilienthal, later in his career, when he returns to the United States, he um, ends up actually drawing out the idea that what decentralization really means is for-profit privatization. And he becomes involved in experiments under the auspices of the war on poverty and the great society, experiments in devolving forms of social welfare provision to private capital um, using for-profit contracting in ways that had never been used before. So from Lilienthal's perspective, he's walking a straight line through the 20th century. He doesn't ever think that he's turned his back on the New Deal. He thinks he's constantly fulfilling its promise. But what it turns out to contain are these very ambiguous promises that can lead you straight into forms of privatization and private uh, uh, for-profit delegation that we will regard today as kind of the undoing of the New Deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he just makes an excellent guide through all of the changes that you document in your book, um, you know, from the, um, the New Deal through Colombia and back to um, the United States in the 1960s. So I wanted to ask you about some of the research that you did. Um, in particular, was there uh, a particular archive or set of documents that reframed some of your thinking? Hmm. I mean, I worked in a lot of archives in the U.S. and Colombia. I worked in, I don't know, over 30. Oh, wow. um, and um, so, I mean, I will say, I mean, I, probably one of the reasons that Lilienthal is kind of a, a character who appears throughout the story is that I used his papers fairly early on in my research. And um, they are so lyrical <laughs> and extensive that they did... Um, identify for me some of the important kind of concepts and questions that I then looked for in other archives. So for instance, the 
fact that he and all of these Colombian capitalists are constantly writing about decentralization just made that theme like a lot, you know, alive for me in a way that I hadn't really uh, expected to, you know, I hadn't necessarily expected to write about state decentralization. Uh, but I became fascinated about that theme through his papers. There were other archives um, that were also very important. So for me, um, I started by doing a little bit of research in U.S. archives and then um, really did as much research in Colombian archives as I could. And I lived in Colombia for about a year and a half. And in the course of doing research there, um, there are some wonderful um, collections there that, that helped me a lot. One of the really important ones was actually the um, archive of the Cauca Valley Corporation or the CVC, which was the first regional development corporation in Colombia. Um, Lilanthal was an advisor to them. They're started by this group of, of capitalists in the city of Cali. And they have an absolutely fantastic archive. It's very well maintained and it is very, very little used. I, to be honest, I'm not sure that I was really aware of how little used it was when I went to go um, use the collection, but it was a really extraordinary find for me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the CVC, uh, as that is the subject of your first chapter. So the CVC is really important um, in your book for several reasons, but um, chiefly it is important in how it represents the um, the invention of the region as um, an autonomous um, governing jurisdiction, um, as uh, a way to almost pull power away from the capital. And, uh, you know, Lilenthal is there as well as, um, you know, like a, a, an international development consultant, although it's not clear how much she's doing um, other than just lending his name to the project. So can you tell the story of the CVC? What drove its creation and why does it make for such a, an excellent example of mid-century developmental state making? Sure. Um, you know, all around the mid 20th century world, there are the creation of these river valley development agencies and the CBC is one example. And it was spearheaded by a group of capitalists in the city of Cali who were interested in raising regional productivity and fomenting the growth of agribusiness. They were already magnates in the sugar industry. They had um, a wide variety, really, of capitalist interests. And they're from a very wealthy uh, region of Colombia. So this is not the Tennessee Valley. Um, and indeed, the reason that Lilienthal and the World Bank and the U.S. government all want to um, partner with these guys is precisely because they seem poised to produce a success story. It's almost like a kind of no-fail object of aid. So um, this is a group of capitalists who are very well organized, and they come from a a rich but historically somewhat isolated region of Colombia, which is famously a country of regions. And what I um, show is how they contribute to the construction of a developmental state by prevailing upon the national government and um, forcing the national government, the, the, the Colombian state, to create a new form of public enterprise, um, the Regional Autonomous Corporation, which has national powers um, that previously were reserved for the national government itself and, and devolves them to uh, the board of, of this uh, corporation, which has its jurisdiction defined actually by the contours of a river valley. And in that sense, there were other forms of decentralization in Colombian history. The constitution in Colombia, the constitution of 1886, created a highly centralized political system, but it had created many forms of administrative decentralization. The 
um, CBC is sort of part of that history of constantly adapting the, the um, practice of administrative decentralization. And what it does is it, it conjures a new jurisdiction uh, from a purportedly natural region. And it says we don't have a level of government that exists really to deal with the integrated problems of a river valley. And so therefore, we're going to conjure such um, an institution from the landowners and capitalists who are invested in this area. That is how the Colombian developmental state grows, um, by delegating responsibility. And in this case, the form that decentralization takes is really interesting because it has two different aspects. On the one hand, um, it involves giving national powers to a regional body. And on the other hand, it involves giving national powers to a group of capitalists and reinventing the state in the image of the business corporation. And both of those kind of tendencies, one towards regionalism and the other towards uh, privatization, uh, lay seeds, I suppose, that can then be spun out, they can be cultivated for many different ends. So I um, start off the story with the creation of the CBC and the kind of um, decentralization that it stands for as a way of kind of setting up some of the early principles of the Colombian developmental state. And then I show in, in later chapters how participants in those programs go on to sort of draw lessons out of this experiment that can seem, um, you know, by the 70s and 80s, wildly antagonistic to the foundational purposes of the, of the developmental state. Mm-hmm. And so another strategy of the developmental state is self-help housing. Uh, and this is a critical part of your analysis. But self-help housing seems to almost defy um, one's expectations of this moment. Uh, it entailed a ton of private actors um, in the construction of these homes. But as you point out in your book, the largest housing project um, under the Alliance for Progress initiative was in Colombia, and it was a self-help housing project. So can you just share with listeners what exactly self-help housing was or is, um, and how did it become a feature of the uh, you know, mid-century developmental state? Yeah. Well, you know, when I first went to Colombia, I realized very quickly that I had very little idea what, you know, quote unquote, state-led development amounted to. That's a really misleading term. It kind of drives me crazy. So one of my first clues that I, I had no idea what I was talking about was the neighborhood of Ciudad Kennedy, which originated in the early 1960s as the largest housing project built in Latin America under the Alliance for Progress, which was this inter-American development uh, program created um, by U.S. and, and Latin American governments in, in the 1960s, the Kennedy administration. And indeed, this was a... It, when I heard, you know, housing project, I thought of publicly owned apartment buildings. And that's not what Ciudad Kennedy was. Ciudad Kennedy was a private home ownership venture. And um, what I discovered was that it was an exemplar, first of all, of a particular form of housing development, a particular kind of public policy called self-help housing. And this was a system in which the state um, it was used by basically cash-strapped states that didn't have enough of a tax base to assume the burdens, really, of building uh, and maintaining um, and administering public property. And so instead, the state took on a somewhat more restrained role. So what the government would do is provide mortgage loans and plans and titled land and supervision, and then they would deputize citizens to go out and build their own houses, pay off their mortgage loans, and become homeowners. And 
I was surprised to discover that this was a form of housing policy that grew directly but unexpectedly from, on the one hand, U.S. public housing law of the 1930s, and on the other hand, Colombian agrarian reform law of the 1930s. Um, And so it became very interesting to me as kind of a transitional sort of program that is an extension of the state building experiments that come out of the Great Depression, and at the same time is seeding some economic practices, for instance, it is an extremely austere form of social welfare provision. It's designed to push costs and risks onto people with very little ability to pay them and kind of um, not cost the state very much, the Colombian state or the U.S. state, which is providing aid. Um, in that sense, it's, uh, it is a form of, of housing policy that is internally just as suited to an era of fiscal retrenchment as to an era of fiscal expansion. And indeed, self-help housing, while it was born out of the kind of welfare and developmental programs of the mid-20th century, has this very long life and survives the ruptures of the 70s and 80s to become um, an emblematic feature of neoliberal um, political economy as well. So explaining kind of where it had come from and and why it uh, a developmental state could create such an austere form of social welfare provision became an interesting puzzle for me. That's what the third chapter is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the second half of the book, you show how self-help housing um, was um, imported back into the United States. Uh, and that's really interesting because um, for a long time, the U.S. had supported self-help housing abroad, um, but um, rejected it domestically. So can you just share with listeners how self-help housing ended up in the United States um, as a national policy? Uh, and, like, Do you have a particular example of a self-help housing project um, that you'd like to share? Sure. So oh, there are a lot of um, paths that, you know, back to the United States. North Americans you know, are are deceived for a few decades after the Second World War into thinking wrongly that poverty is somebody else's problem. And as a result, a lot of the most dynamic experimentation in policymaking around problems of poverty occurs in U.S. imperial um, contexts and in U.S. foreign policy contexts. And then when the war on poverty comes, a lot of people return home and they promise to repatriate the lessons of development. And so that's a time when self-help housing um, indeed uh, also returns to the U.S. mainland. Within the you know, frame of U.S. history, self-help housing has its origin as an imperial policy in Puerto Rico during the New Deal. And because Puerto Rico was so important in the minds of U.S. policymakers in the post-war period, U.S. policymakers who had been involved in those Puerto Rican experiments turn um, the Puerto Rican experiments into sort of models for U.S. foreign policy elsewhere. So the U.S. government is promoting self-help housing, you know, all over the third world during the uh, 1950s and 1960s. And what's interesting is I think that there are several different mechanisms by which foreign policy becomes repatriated or becomes adapted on, on the U.S. mainland. And they're not all the same mechanisms. In the case of self-help housing, um, what essentially happens is there are domestic groups, um, Quakers, Native American um, uh, nations, there are civil rights activists, there are you know all sorts of kind of social Democrats who are really trying to bring federal housing spending into rural areas to house, you know, farm workers and Indians living on reservations, people who've had 
little to no access to federal um, housing programs before the 1960s. And they had long admired, actually, these build-your-own-home programs in, um, in foreign contexts. And they saw in these um, something that we are not liable to remember because I think today this, these kinds of housing programs seem so regressive. Uh, what they saw in these programs, though, was indeed a way of actually expanding state responsibilities by bringing spending into um, rural communities and by directing federal funds straight to farm workers themselves or to Native Americans themselves, rather than allowing like large um, uh, growers in rural areas who had long controlled federal spending of all kinds to sort of channel housing funds. So the idea of the individual home loan to the, um, to the farm worker seemed a liberating dream. And as a result, they are, they've been mobilizing for decades, really, to try and, and get these sorts of programs on the mainland. And what changes in the 1960s is um, really that the federal government starts to see these programs differently. For a variety of reasons, the federal government had never really wanted this kind of policy on the mainland before or it had only allowed it in, in very, very small degree. Um, and in the 1960s, I think what happens is that the, um, uh, the long history of self-help housing as a vaunted symbol of U.S. foreign aid changes the kind of vision that policymakers in Washington have. They're familiar with this um, no longer as a weird um, kind of exceptional um, colonial policy in Puerto Rico, but it's a deeply studied object of U.S. expertise, and it's something that exists kind of all over the world. And so federal officials begin to authorize um, uh, local initiatives to start these programs. They begin funding them. And under the war on poverty, self-help housing becomes a, a national rural program to house Indians living on reservations and, um, and, and farm workers in some of the richest agricultural regions of the United States. Um, and so this is an example of a policy that um, comes home really through the initiative of social movements that are looking um, to the third world for inspiration. There are other paths by which policy comes home that are very different from that, though. And I, I think that a lot of what the book is about is the influence of, of capital, actually, in bringing purported lessons of development to the United States in ways that um, create new forms of for-profit contracting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really useful way of putting it, that there are almost these different um, circuits of influence. Um, mm. And so in the case of self-help housing, um, you know, you, you see a lot of domestic actors um, pushing for these policies to be implemented. But as you show uh, in the case of, um, you know, like the Great Society um, and other welfare programs, uh, it was more about, uh, you know, capital finding its way home. And I really want to talk about this chapter on the Great Society and War and Poverty um, as it blew me away. Uh, I think it opens up um, so many doors for more research on the role of capital in U.S. foreign policy um, and how uh, those things are connected to domestic policy. So here in the 1960s and 70s, um, you really start to see just how connected genealogically the mixed economy is to um, the neoliberal state. And you also start to see um, just how significant Colombia is for U.S. domestic policy. And so I have tons of questions um, about this chapter, um, but I'll try to uh, you know, restrict myself to one or two. So what, how did these businesses... 
um, that were involved in international development and um, uh, and other such domains insinuate themselves into the Great Society and War and Poverty programs? Uh, and what kind of services did these businesses offer? Like, wh- what did this look like? Mm, yeah. Well, one of the things that... Um is interesting is, you know, we often think, and I think for good reason, we think about the Great Society and the War on Poverty as a time when the federal government creates kind of new ways of channeling um, funds and power, really, through the Community Action Program, right, where the federal government is now going to give money directly to community organizations that you know, uh, are supposed to speak for poor people themselves and are supposed to sort of design uh, projects in the interest of, of, of those who are members of these organizations who they are supposed to speak for. And that is an important form of kind of state restructuring and, and sort of devolution of power that we know about in the war on poverty. But there are other um, forms of devolution that are also taking place under the auspices of the war on poverty that are put there by capital. And what I focus on in the book is basically the birth of for-profit educational contracting in the United States, which traces to the war on poverty and was the outcome of um, business mobilization that basically prevailed upon the Johnson administration to take forms of for-profit contracting that had a really long history in foreign and imperial policy, in Indian affairs, and adapt those and apply them to domestic training and education programs that had always been seen as kind of protected realms of nonprofit activity. Um, And we think of for-profit educational contracting as something that is like totally neoliberal, was born yesterday. It was born as a developmentalist instrument, and it really shows us the way in which the welfare state itself was um, shaped by capital and was ultimately, in ways that are very perverse, a service to capital. You, what you get during the war on poverty are the country's largest industrial corporations, military contractors, foreign aid contractors, and corporations that were experienced in Indian industrialization policy marching together into um, the war on poverty, where they run the majority of the country's job uh, training programs in U.S. cities and and on Indian reservations. They run them for profit. And what they say is, look, we have proven our worth as public servants in the third world. We have proven our worth in imperial and in foreign contexts. And now we stand ready to assume all sorts of public functions at home. They mobilize in concrete ways by actually taking up these roles as contractors. And they also mobilize um, in places like business associations to sort of really make the case ideologically, to sort of put out statements and to sort of... Um, participate in what is a huge public fight in the 1960s over, you know, really the legitimacy of the corporation, the legitimacy of the profit motive. And they, by insinuating themselves into the welfare state, start to arrive at new ways of arguing for the legitimacy of capital. And what they say by the, by the, uh, by the mid-1960s, the late 1960s, what they say is, look, The corporation is being slandered as the cause of the United States problems and the cause of the world's problems. We're being slandered as um, sources of inequality, of exploitation, of war, of ecological degradation. But actually, you don't really understand what the corporation is. The corporation isn't something that exists to like build cars. The corporation is a generic problem-solving instrument. And if you apply its method of um, profit-seeking to any problem, it can actually be a generic for-profit problem-solving. 
So what the government needs to do is not regulate capital or push it out of, of certain areas. Instead, what the government needs to do is create new markets in social services and allow the corporation to apply its existing methods of capital accumulation to training, to education, to health, to all these areas that were the kind of bread and butter of the welfare state. And the corporation can actually be an an instrument of progress in that sense. So this is a radical transformation, both of the realms of life that are considered to be natural and fitting objects of capital accumulation. And it's also a radical transformation in how capitalists legitimate themselves. These are changes that happened in the 1960s, and they are led, they are really spearheaded by businessmen and firms that are experienced in foreign and imperial affairs, um, who then shape the whole vernacular and the activities and the direction of domestic capital. Mm -hmm. Can you provide our listeners um, uh, a concrete example of some company or someone um, who um, did insinuate themselves into the these uh, you know welfare state programs. Oh sure. So I mean, one of the groups that's interesting to me. Any historian of Latin America will know about um, David Rockefeller and Peter Grace um, and their mobilization to shape the Alliance for Progress. So these, you know, David Rockefeller of Chase Manhattan Bank, Peter Grace of W.R. Grace. In the early 1960s, they are um, involved in creating what become this long series, basically, of, of business organizations that are trying to shape U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. They start off as um, the Commerce Committee for the Alliance for Progress, and they become the business group for Latin America, and then the Council for Latin America. Today, this group is called the Council of the Americans. Anyway, they're primordial purpose was to make Latin America safe for U.S. foreign investment. And one of the things that they're deeply involved in during the period of the Alliance for Progress is arguing that there shouldn't be as much government-to-government aid. And instead, what should happen is that uh, public um, uh, you know, development assistance should be channeled through and to business corporations. So it should go through the U.S. private sector, and its ultimate object should be corporations in Latin America, and that they could be um, agents then of development. That is a group of businessmen, the not just Grace and and uh, Rockefeller themselves, but the group of corporations that they mobilize, which are basically large foreign investors in Latin America. They, um, you can just sort of follow their tracks into the United States. They are involved. Um, kind of simultaneously in uh, when the war on poverty gets declared, they're already involved in sort of channeling U.S. development assistance in in Latin America. And then they become involved in um, the Business Advisory Council to the War on Poverty, which Sergeant Shriver, the head of the War on Poverty, convenes, which is basically a group of corporations that he's trying to line up to show support for the War on Poverty. Um, And the membership of those two organizations really overlaps. And you get individual um, uh, job corps contractors coming straight out of the world of um, U.S. foreign policy. So a very simple example there is the first job corps um, camp that opens up um, in New Jersey, the Kilmer Job Corps Camp, is opened by ITT, which is known mainly as a military contractor and a foreign uh, a policy veteran. Uh, they were one of the founding members of the Business Group for Latin America, and they are basically legitimating themselves at home and finding a new stream of government revenue by remaking themselves not just as a military contractor, but now also as a job training contractor at home. One of the really 
um, interesting aspects of this and very perverse aspects of this really is that the Janus face of, of these programs, you know, on the one hand being involved in the welfare state in, in the U.S. and on the other hand being involved in uh, foreign investment in Latin America means that a corporation like ITT is involved on the one hand in what, you know, we would tend to regard as, as fairly benign activities in the United States, you know, job training, for instance. And on the other hand, these foreign investors in Latin America become quite notorious for their um, uh, their relationship with quite brutal military dictatorships and counterinsurgency programs in Latin America and making sense of their kind of simultaneous activities in, in these two regions depends on recognizing their essentially parasitic relationship to the state. They are companies that understand themselves to live and die by public subsidies. And they're not wrong in that. Um, and they make a place for themselves really within every uh, anti-communist state project that will have them. And they are as eager to facilitate cataclysmic violence in Latin America, working you know, in, in context of military dictatorship, as they are eager to uh, go to work within the war on poverty. Now, when I examine that sort of contrast, I'm also in some ways trying to point out some of the contradictions that they built into the war on poverty and show ways in which job training doesn't end up delivering all of the promises that it makes, in part because it's forced to deliver profits to corporations rather than merely education and opportunities to um, those who are, who are coming into the training. But there is a, 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 a seeming contradiction that I think can be very easily kind of reconciled in when we examine the um, what seem to be the the two very different kinds of activities that a company like ITT is undertaking in the U.S. and Latin America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that's really striking about all of this is how you have, um, you know, uh, one company that's in um, one industry um, uh, who then very quickly repurposes themselves um, to uh, start providing educational um, or training services for these welfare programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what you start to realize is that for these companies, um, the entire model is just to extract revenue from the state. And the particulars of whatever services um, that are being provided are, um, uh, you know, almost irrelevant. Mm, yep. Absolutely. It's, it's a fascinating uh, case study in your book. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really characteristic tension of the mixed economy, right? If you believe in a mixed economy, then invariably you think that, you know, capitalist development serves both public and private ends. And moreover, that the growth of the state will always be uh, kind of necessarily and as a point of pride, the growth of, of private um, activity as well. That's not an accident. It's, it's the design. Um, and capital makes a lot out of that. Great. And so I really want to get to the final chapter of your book, um, which provides a fascinating um, almost genealogy of decentralization um, from the, um, you know, the mixed economy through to the, um, the later neoliberal state. And uh, in, in here you, you see how the rationale for decentralization changes between the different economic orders. And in this chapter, you zoom in on one particular actor um, named Eduardo Wiesner. Uh, and um, this is an individual who, um, you know, for a very long time had an interest in decentralization. Um, but um, what's interesting about him is that he had a career that spanned the 
um, you know, the entire per period that you're looking at from the developmental state um, and up to um, the, the later neoliberal state. Um, can you say something a little bit about this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The last chapter is kind of an alternate genealogy of the World Bank's prescriptions of the 1990s. And what I argue is that um, those don't only have their roots. I mean, I you mentioned Quinn Slobodian's book, and you know, there's there's a lot that's been written about um, the origins of the kind of prescriptions of international financial institutions and international trade organizations in uh, the late 20th century that you know, basically sort of traces them to the Chicago School, the Mont Pelerin Society, um, you know, a, kind of a constellation of foundations and think tanks and, um, and scholarly communities on the right. And that work is really great. But I don't think it's the only root of those prescriptions. Um, and what I do in this chapter is I look at where Eduardo Wiesner came from. Wiesner is a really interesting person. He's a Colombian economist. Um, he's still alive. He was the Western Hemisphere director of the IMF in the uh, mid-1980s, uh, from I think it was 1982 to 87, I want to say, uh, which means that he's the one who was in charge of negotiating structural adjustment agreements all around Latin America. And in the 1990s, he became a consultant to the World Bank, where he became one of the important authorities on the practice of state decentralization as an adjunct to structural adjustment, and so understood as a neoliberal prescription to dismantle and redesign um, state functions. Um, that had been, you know, built up through the developmentalist era. And what's very clear to me is that Wiesner was not a dissident outsider to mid-century state formation. He was a product of it. And I trace his career uh, from the time he was a college student, actually, in Bogota, when he encountered decentralization in the form that it took back in the days of the CBC, when it was when that corporation was created, the first regional development corporation. In the 1950s and 1960s, decentralization was a celebrated instrument to build a developmental state under incredibly punishing restrictions. In a context where there's an anti-communist fear of planning, where there's a very, very uh, restricted tax base, where international loans are not going to be forthcoming for everything that you need, um, and where you have a really usurping capitalist class, quite frankly, decentralization becomes a way to expand state functions by delegating them, um, whether it's through self-help housing, whether it's through creating um, new forms of public enterprise like the CBC. This is a, a common way to build a state. And Wiesner, as an economist, is being formed in that world. And I trace basically his writings on decentralization from that moment through his, you know, much more well-known career um, in, in Washington. And I show how the prescriptions that he arrived at by the 80s and 90s are not identical to the notion of decentralization that he encountered as a, as a young man, but were instead his own kind of original derivations. And I really argue for his intellectual authorship, that he is not simply... Um, uh, saying kind of you know picking up ideas from um public choice theorists or from um uh you know the chicago school or others who he encounters when he works in washington later in his life but that actually he had arrived at the prescriptions that he issued at the imf and the world bank on his own by turning over in his mind the um, practice of decentralization that he knew at home and what's very interesting is that he is very cosmopolitan 
he's almost kind of, I mean, he's more than bilingual, you know, in the sense that obviously he speaks Spanish and English, but he's also intellectually very bilingual. Um, he had this kind of searching relationship to theory. And what's interesting is that by the time he comes out of his work at the IMF and the World Bank, he sounds exactly like his U.S. colleagues. He has assimilated uh, many of their theoretical perspectives, and he speaks in a language that is utterly legible to um, uh, in U.S. policy debates. But U.S. observers are mistaken if they read his work and think that he's a product of the Chicago School, let's say, or if they think he's a product of the Mont Pelerin Society or any of the groups that are commonly seen to be um, authors of, of neoliberal prescriptions. What actually they're observing is somebody who was um, able to speak in multiple tongues and who... Uh, you know, I, I don't regard this as, as praise but, uh, in a political sense, but in an intellectual sense, you know, he was the author of his own ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wiesner is just uh, an excellent case study for your book, because in his very career, um, we can see um, some of the arguments that you're making, um, especially about um, the connection between the, um, the mixed economy and the neoliberal state. Um, and moreover, you can also see how um, these ideas that get taken from one economic order um, uh, get transformed in, uh, in another. So I want to get to the end of your book. Um, you conclude the book with um, uh, an ominous line. Um, you write, um, we might recognize that when we take issue with neoliberalism, we are often struggling with much more enduring features of capitalism and take aim accordingly. Why does it matter that we think beyond terms like neoliberalism? Well, I mean, I, I will start again by saying how valuable that term was to me, you know, that um, in some ways, you know, I, um, I would say that my politics are the same as they, they were um, when I was, uh, you know, um, a person first encountering that term and how valuable that, that concept was to me. Um, and I still think it's a really valuable concept, but I do think that, um, Sometimes a lot of features of capitalism get dumped into the category neoliberal. And when, if, if we understand ourselves to be just up against neoliberalism, I don't think we've cast our sights wide enough, really. Um, this book shows um, the way in which austere systems of social welfare provision were not an invention of like the post-1970s world. The way in which forms of for-profit contracting and the ways in which sort of capital is able to... Um, kind of insinuate itself into the state and make itself essential to the functioning of the state. That's not a neoliberal practice. That's just a longstanding feature of capitalism. And in that sense, I, I, I don't think that the, I didn't think that the last line of the book was designed to be um, ominous. I, I hope that it's, um, I hope that it offers actually something that people might, might do. Um, but I, I think that um, one limitation or one peril, I suppose, of, um, uh, of dumping a lot of features of capitalism into the concept of neoliberalism is that we might be uh, misled to think that we're only up against um, uh, practices that have a fairly short lifespan rather than practices that have a, a much longer lifespan. And I think, you know, uh, analytically and politically, it's worth recognizing the much longer um, gestation of a lot of um, forms of profit-making and forms of statecraft that we have to contend with today. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's an excellent place to end our conversation about the book. Um, do you want to tell listeners about what you're working on right now? 
I'm working on a new book that's called The Disappearing Worker. And this is a book about the unraveling of the employment relationship since 1945. So how it came to be that people still go to work, but increasingly they work as contractors or they work for contractors or they work ultimately for financial corporations that have bought their ostensible employers. That kind of corporate restructuring obviously has had a huge effect on class relations and class power. And I'm interested in understanding its origins and it, um, in a transnational way. I'm, um, I'm sort of curious about the fact that Oftentimes, U.S. historians talk about that process just in in national terms. But I, in researching the first book, became convinced that there were other frames in which we should understand it. One thing I was struck by um, that I've been researching now is that in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, there were related forms of corporate restructuring that U.S. multinationals were experimenting with in the third world. Um, Basically, what's going on is that U.S. corporations are enticed in these years by the opportunities for profit that they can find within developmental programs, you know, under the sort of auspices of national development in Latin America, in uh, parts of Africa. And at the same time, they're really struggling with the liabilities and the risks of employing workers and owning plant and equipment in an age of social upheaval where, you know, governments might want to tax and regulate and nationalize them. They have to deal with labor movements. Um, And so on the one hand, there's great promise. And on the other hand, there's great risk. And this is a moment where I I found that um, U.S. corporations begin to experiment with new forms of restructuring in order to allow themselves to continue to invest in the third world without bearing all of the risks and responsibilities that are traditionally um, associated with ownership and management. And so I'm interested in looking at the third world, the sort of mid-century third world, as a kind of a laboratory and a proving ground for forms of corporate restructuring that then um, uh, were adapted, actually, and kind of moved northward um, into the United States, Canada, also into Australia, into parts of Europe, um, after the 1970s. Um, and in that sense, I'm interested in kind of thinking about the fate of U.S. workers as being connected to the fate of workers abroad by situating both of those groups of workers within multinational corporations that transposed practices and lessons across world regions. Wow, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. And Amy, I want to thank you for speaking with me today. Um, It was a real pleasure. The book is called Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, The Rise and Fall of Welfare and Developmental States in the Americas. And you've been listening to New Books in History.